Many of you were at the rectory reception last night for those who've uh, been a part of our stewardship campaign for next year. And um, others of you have, have been in the rectory at other times. I hope you'll come on Epiphany, if not before, for the parish party that happens there on January 6th. Um, but if you've been in the rectory living room, the front room on 88th Street, um, you might have noticed in and among the books on the bookshelves, um, there is pottery. And whether you've noticed the pottery or not, it has noticed you. Because the pottery are face jugs, and they have eyes and noses and mouths, and they look out at you, and they watch everything that goes on in the rectory. Face jugs are a form of pottery that have faces on them, obviously. They come from an uncertain history. Um, Most of mine come from the Piedmont and mountain areas of North Carolina, Um, Some suggest that the practice of making these jugs with funny faces on them um, was brought over by slaves and was used in burial rites of some kind. Um, Others have suggested that the faces were intended to be scary, and so it was the perfect sort of jug to contain moonshine and try to scare away the children. I doubt that worked very well. I like them because they come from the earth, they come from North Carolina soil, they remind me of home, and and they make me laugh. They make me laugh with their funny faces. Sometimes they make me think as well. I, I wonder about the potter when the potter was making that particular jug. Some of the potters I've met and some I've talked with about what they might have been thinking One in particular likes to scribble something from the news of the day whenever she finishes a pot. But I wonder when a face is especially ugly or contorted on a pot, um, was the potter using that one as a kind of exercise of internalized aggression? Were they getting even with a family member or a friend or a spouse? Were they deliberately trying to make the jug look ugly? Or was it some sort of demon? Was it a way of, 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 of picturing something that then would have no longer control over another person? Who knows what the potter thinks? But the potter certainly has tremendous freedom, doesn't she? Uh, when a potter works with clay, that object comes out of the potter himself at some level. It's shaped by the potter's hands. It comes from the potter's imagination and the potter's heart. The potter's time and talent are all expressed in that object. Sometimes the potter even puts herself or himself at risk, depending on the the situation around the pottery. And certainly before lead glazes went out of fashion, that was a real risk for the artist. In firing up a kiln to finish off a pot and overseeing the process, sometimes the the potter even bears a mark or a wound from the process, a burn, say. For all these reasons, and probably many more, it makes sense that Isaiah, in our first reading, would use the image of the potter and clay to express a certain aspect of our creation and existence in God. 
in reading Isaiah today, we hear Isaiah's sharp words at the beginning when Isaiah sort of laments the condition of the world. Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isaiah is tired of people ignoring God and of God's ways. And so he's asking God, he's pleading with God a a prayer that maybe some of us have asked again and again. Get them, God. Come down and make things right. Make them pay. Why do you let the wicked prosper? Why don't you do more for the poor, the oppressed, or, or this person or that person? Isaiah goes on for a bit, ranting and railing at God. But then in the midst of that prayer, sort of at its, um, at its high point, Isaiah begins to reconsider. He runs out of steam. He, he's a little bit like a child who throws a tantrum and then finally exhausted sort of falls into the arms of the parent. And so Isaiah falls back into the arms of God. And the prayer changes, doesn't it? He says, yet, O Lord, yet, yet you are our father. And then the line I like so much, he says, we are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Isaiah begins in this vengeful, angry place and eventually moves to a place of compassion. Um, We might expect that from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament, from fiery prophets, but it, it might surprise us when we hear that sort of language from Jesus. But that's just what we hear in part of today's gospel. Jesus is speaking and preaching out of a a larger tradition, the tradition of Jewish apocalyptic literature. It's a tradition in which people of faith from time to time look to God to come and save them, to, to fix the world, to turn it upside down and shake things out the way they should be. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Ezekiel, especially Daniel, all contain sections of this this genre of literature within the Bible. And that's what Jesus knows so well and is speaking out of. Jesus is telling us that everything has a process. If you bake a loaf of bread, it has a preparation time. It has a time in which changes can be made and the actual bread formed and set. But then there's a time when the bread is baked. And either it has to be eaten or given away or it'll go bad. Everything has its process. People are born, we grow, we mature, we eventually die. We're born again in Christian faith. The world itself, in apocalyptic view, is created. It groans and grows with maturity. And then one day it comes to a close and makes way for something else, something new. But Jesus is saying this, I think, to us, that the process happens in most things. But with us, We are the people of God's hand, and the process is never finished. It's open-ended. It keeps on. It continues. God is not finished with us. The end is nowhere in sight. We're like those face jugs 
and yet we're not like those face jogs. We're, we're like them in that we are fashioned into something rare and unique by the potter. We have our own expressions. The clay has been dug. We've been shaped and formed and molded. And yet, unlike those face jogs, we still have time. Time to be reshaped. Time for new features and contours to be added in. Those face jugs in my living room have already gone into the kiln. They've been fired and hardened. They're stuck with the faces they have. We're not. Our faces change. Our bodies change. Our hearts change. Everything about us is open-ended. I often love to point to our icon of the Holy Trinity in the memorial chapel. And so often I focus on that central piece, that center aspect where it shows the, the three angels, the three strangers who foreshadow the Holy Trinity. Um, but they show up in the book of Genesis because they speak to Abraham and Sarah who are on the far left and the far right of that icon. Abraham and Sarah are well up in years I think the Bible says they're in their 90s. But God comes to them in the form of these angels to say, guess what? It's not over yet. I've got big plans for you. The season of Advent is about our being open to God's angels, to God's surprises, to God's bursting into our lives with with something new. We never know when it will happen or where it will happen. We are still in God's hands, able to be shaped and changed, formed for good, formed for love. Today we begin the season of Advent, this season of waiting and watching, a season of of God making and remaking things new that leads us to Christmas The symbols are all around. All this purple reminds us of the royalty of King Jesus, a king unlike anything ever known in this world, but a king nonetheless. The purple also reminds us a bit of penitence. In our great litany, we certainly heard those notes of penitence. We only do it the first Sunday in Advent. Don't worry. Advent is a good time for spiritual house cleaning, just like Lent. But that's not the focus. The focus really is symbolized in a funny way in our little wreath, our Advent wreath, as as each week another candle is lit. It reminds us of increasing light, just as increasing light happens in nature, so it happens in our spiritual nature The lessons, the scriptures we've heard today are not meant to scare us into right living or or to make us so preoccupied with Christ's coming that we miss the holy right here in front of us. Just the opposite. The intention of these scriptures is that we treasure each day, that we live as best we can, and that we rejoice in the fact that we are all in process. The world might seem beyond repair in so many ways. But the good news is that God is not finished with it yet. God's not finished with us. God's not finished with those around us. Our our families might seem broken, but God isn't finished yet. Relationships might seem completely out of shape. Our own lives might seem like they're badly formed lumps of clay. 
But the good news, the really great news, is that God the potter is not finished yet. God is shaping and smoothing and changing, ever making us into God's precious image. May this season of Advent bring us increasing light, increasing joy, and increasing love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.